Chapter twenty six of Izzy Popenjoy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. Izzy Popenjoy by Antony Trollope. Chapter twenty six. The Dean returns to town. Do you mean to say that you have any objection to my being acquainted with Captain de Baron? This question Mary asked her husband on the Monday after his return. On that day Lady Susanna went back to Brothershire, having somewhat hurried her return in consequence of the uncomfortable state of things in Munster Court. They had all gone to church together on the intermediate Sunday, and Lady Susanna had done her best to conciliate her sister-in-law. But she was ignorant of the world, and did not know how bitter to a young married woman is such interference as that of which she had been guilty. She could not understand the amount of offence which was rankling in Mary's bosom. It had not consisted only in the words spoken, but her looks in the man's presence had conveyed the same accusation, so that it could be seen and understood by the man himself. Mary, with an effort, had gone on with her play, determined that no one should suppose her to be cowed by her grand sister-in-law. But through it all she had resolved always to look upon Lady Susanna as an enemy. She had already abandoned her threat of not speaking to her own guest, but nothing that Lady Susanna could say, nothing that Lord George could say, softened her heart in the least. The woman had told her that she was a flirt, had declared that what she did and said was improper. The woman had come there as a spy, and the woman should never be her friend. In these circumstances Lord George found it impossible not to refer to the unfortunate subject again, and in doing so caused the above question to be asked. "'Do you mean to say that you have any objection to my being acquainted with Captain de Baron?' She looked at him with so much eagerness in her eyes as she spoke, that he knew that much at any rate of his present comfort might depend on the answer which he made. He certainly did object to her being acquainted with Jack de Baron. He did not at all like Jack de Baron. In spite of what he had found himself obliged to say, in order that she might be comforted on his first arrival, he did not like slang, and he did not like fortune-telling cards or bagatelle. His sympathies in these matters were all with his sister. He did like spending his own time with Mrs. Houghton, but it was dreadful to him to think that his wife should be spending hers with Jack de Baron. Nevertheless, he could not tell her so. No, he said, I have no particular objection. Of course, if you had, I would never see him again. But it would be very dreadful. He would have to be told that you were jealous. I am not of the least jealous, said he angrily. You should not use such a word. Certainly I should not have used it, but for the disturbance which your sister has caused. But after all that she has said, there must be some understanding. I like Captain de Baron very much, as I dare say you like other ladies. Why not? I have never suspected anything. But Susanna did. Of course you don't like all this, George. I don't like it. I have been so miserable that I have almost cried my eyes out. But if people will make mischief, what is one to do? The only thing is not to have the mischief-maker any more." The worst of this was, to him, that she was so manifestly getting the better of him. When he had married her, not yet nine months since, she had been a little girl, altogether in his hands, not pretending to any self-action, and anxious to be guided in everything by him. 
His only fear had been that she might be too slow in learning that self-assertion which is necessary from a married woman to the world at large. But now she had made very great progress in the lesson, not only as regarded the world at large, but as regarded himself also. As for his family, the grandeur of his family, she clearly had no reverence for that. Lady Susanna, though generally held to be very awful, had been no more to her than any other Susan. He almost wished that he had told her that he did object to Jack de Baron. There would have been a scene, of course, and she, not improbably, might have told her father. That, at present, would have been doubly disagreeable, as it was incumbent upon him to stand well with the dean just at this time. There was this battle to be fought with his brother, and he felt that he could not fight it without the dean. Having given his sanction to Jack de Baron, he went away to his club to write his letter. This writing really amounted to no more than copying the dean's words, which he had carried in his pocket ever since he had left the deanery, and the dean's words were as follows. Munster Court, 26 April, 1870-blank. My dear Brotherton, I am compelled to write to you under very disagreeable circumstances, and to do so on a subject which I would willingly avoid if a sense of duty would permit me to be silent. You will remember that you wrote to me in October last, telling me that you were about to be married. I am to be married to the Marchesa Luigi, were your words. Up to that moment we had heard nothing of the lady, or of any arrangement as to a marriage. When I told you of my own intended marriage a few months before that, you merely said in answer that you might probably soon want the house at Manor Cross yourself. It now seems that when you told us of your intended marriage, you had already been married over two years, and that when I told you of mine, you had a son over twelve months old, a fact which I might certainly expect that you would communicate to me at such a time. I beg to assure you that I am now urged to write by no suspicions of my own, but I know that if things are left to go on as they are now, suspicions will arise at a future time. I write altogether in the interests of your son and heir, and for his sake I beseech you to put at once into the hands of your own lawyer absolute evidence of the date of your marriage, of its legality, and of the birth of your son. It will also be expedient that my lawyer shall see the evidence in your lawyer's hands. If you were to die as matters are now, it would be imperative on me to take steps which would seem to be hostile to Popenjoy's interest. I think you must yourself feel that this would be so. And yet nothing would be further from my wish. If we were both to die, the difficulty would be still greater, as in that case proceedings would have to be taken by more distant members of the family. I trust you will believe me when I say that my only object is to have the matter satisfactorily settled. Your affectionate brother, George Germain. When the Marquis received this letter, he was not in the least astonished by it. Lord George had told his sister Sarah that it was to be written, and had even discussed with her the Dean's words. Lady Sarah had thought that as the Dean was a sagacious man, his exact words had better be used. And then Lady Amelia had been told, Lady Amelia having asked various questions on the subject. Lady Amelia had, of course, known that her brother would discuss the matter with the dean, and had begged that she might not be treated as a stranger. Everything had not been told to Lady Amelia, nor had Lady Amelia told all she had heard to her mother. 
But the Marchioness had known enough, and had communicated enough to her son to save him from any great astonishment when he got his brother's letter. Of course he had known that some steps would be taken. He answered the letter at once. "'My dear brother,' he said, "'I don't think it necessary to let you know the reasons which induced me to keep my marriage private a while. You rush at conclusions very fast, in thinking that because a marriage is private, therefore it is illegal.' I am glad that you have no suspicions of your own, and beg to assure you I don't care whether you have or not. Whenever you or anybody else may want to try the case, you or he or they will find that I have taken care that there is plenty of evidence. I didn't know that you had a lawyer. I only hope he won't run you into much expense in finding a mare's nest. Yours truly, B. This was not in itself satisfactory. But such as it was, it did for a time make Lord George believe that Popenjoy was Popenjoy. It is certainly true of him that he wished Popenjoy to be Popenjoy. No personal longing for the title or property made him in his heart disloyal to his brother or his family. And then the trouble and expense and anxieties of such a contest were so terrible to his imagination that he rejoiced when he thought that they might be avoided. But there was the dean. The dean must be satisfied as well as he, and he felt that the dean would not be satisfied. According to agreement, he sent a copy of his brother's letter down to the dean, and added the assurance of his own belief that the marriage had been a marriage, that the heir was an heir, and that further steps would be useless. It need hardly be said that the dean was not satisfied. Before dinner on the following day, the dean was in Munster Court. "'Oh, papa!' exclaimed Mary. "'I am so glad to see you.' Could it be anything about Captain de Baron that had brought him up? If so, of course, she would tell him everything. "'What brought you up so suddenly? Why didn't you write? George is at the club, I suppose.' George was really in Berkeley Square at that moment. "'Oh, yes, he will be home to dinner. Is there anything wrong at Manor Cross, papa?' Her father was so pleasant in his manner to her, that she perceived at once that he had not come up in reference to Captain de Baron. No complaint of her behaviour on that score had as yet reached him. "'Where's your portmanteau, papa?' "'I've got a bed at the hotel in Suffolk Street. I shall only be here one night or at the most two, and as I had to come suddenly, I wouldn't trouble you.' "'Oh, papa, that's very bad of you.' This she said with that genuine tone which begets confidence. The dean was very anxious that his daughter should in truth be fond of his company. In the game which he intended to play, her cooperation and her influence over her husband would be very necessary to him. She must be a loveless rather than a germain till she should blaze forth as the presiding genius of the germain family. That Lord George should become tired of him, and a little afraid of him, he knew could not be avoided. But to her he must, if possible, be a pleasant genius, never accompanied in her mind by ideas of parental severity or clerical heaviness. "'I should weary you out if I came too often and came so suddenly,' he said, laughing. "'But what has brought you, papa?' The Marquis, my dear, who, it seems to me, will for some time to come, have a considerable influence on my doings. The Marquis? He had made up his mind that she should know everything. If her husband did not tell her, he would. Yes, the Marquis. Perhaps I ought to say the Marchioness. 
only that I am unwilling to give that title to a lady who I think very probably has no right to it. Is all that coming up already? The longer it is postponed, the greater will be the trouble to all parties. It cannot be endured that a man in his position should tell us that his son is legitimate when that son was born more than a year before he had declared himself about to marry, and that he should then refuse to furnish us with any evidence. Have you asked him? Mary, as she made the suggestion, was herself horror-stricken at the awfulness of the occasion. George has asked him. And what has the Marquis done? Sent her back a jeering reply. He has a way of jeering which he thinks will carry everything before it. When I called upon him he jeered at me, but he'll have to learn that he cannot jeer you out of your rights. I wish you would not think about my rights, papa. Your rights will probably be the rights of someone else. I know, papa, but still— It has to be done, and George quite agrees with me. The letter which he did write to his brother was arranged between us. Lady Sarah is quite of the same accord, and Lady Susanna—oh, papa, I do so hate Susanna!" This she said with all her eloquence. I dare say she can make herself unpleasant. I have told George that she shall not come here again as a guest. What did she do? I cannot bring myself to tell you what it was that she said. I told George, of course, she is a nasty, evil-minded creature, suspecting everything. I hope there has been nothing disagreeable. It was very disagreeable indeed while George was away. Of course, I did not care so much when he came back. The dean, who had been almost frightened, was reassured when he learned that there had been no quarrel between the husband and wife. Soon afterwards Lord George came in, and was astonished to find that his letter had brought up the dean so quickly. No discussion took place till after dinner, but then the dean was very perspicuous, and at the same time very authoritative. It was in vain that Lord George asked what they could do, and declared that the evil troubles which must probably arise would all rest on his brother's head. But we must prevent such troubles. Let them rest where they will," said the dean. I don't see what we can do. Nor do I, because we are not lawyers. A lawyer will tell us at once. It will probably be our duty to send a commissioner out to Italy to make inquiry. I shouldn't like to do that about my brother. Of course your brother should be told, or rather everything should be told to your brother's lawyer, so that he might be advised what steps he ought to take. We would do nothing secretly nothing of which any one could say that we ought to be ashamed. The dean proposed that they should both go to his attorney, Mr. Battle, on the following day, but this step seemed to Lord George to be such an absolute declaration of war that he begged for another day's delay, and it was at last arranged that he himself should, on that intervening day, call on Mr. Stokes, the Germain family lawyer. The Marquis, with one of his jeers, had told his brother that being a younger brother he was not entitled to have a lawyer. But in truth Lord George had had very much more to do with Mr. Stokes than the Marquis. All the concerns of the family had been managed by Mr. Stokes. The Marquis probably meant to insinuate that the family bill, which was made out perhaps once every three years, was charged against his account. Lord George did call on Mr. Stokes, and found Mr. Stokes very little disposed to give him any opinion. Mr. Stokes was an honest man who disliked trouble of this kind. 
He freely admitted that there was ground for inquiry, but did not think that he himself was the man who ought to make it. He would certainly communicate with the Marquis, should Lord George think it expedient to employ any other lawyer, and should that lawyer apply to him. In the meantime, he thought that immediate inquiry would be a little precipitate. The Marquis might probably himself take steps to put the matter on a proper footing. He was civil, gracious, almost subservient, but he had no comfort to give, and no advice to offer, and like all attorneys he was in favour of delay. Of course, Lord George, you must remember that I am your brother's lawyer, and may in this matter be called upon to act as his confidential adviser. All this Lord George repeated that evening to the Dean, and the Dean merely said that it had been a matter of course. Early on the next morning the Dean and Lord George went together to Mr. Battle's chambers. Lord George felt that he was being driven by his father-in-law, but he felt also that he could not help himself. Mr. Battle, who had chambers in Lincoln's Inn, was a very different man from Mr. Stokes, who carried on his business in a private house at the West End, who prepared wills and marriage settlements for gentlefolk, and who had, in fact, very little to do with law. Mr. Battle was an enterprising man with whom the Dean's first acquaintance had arisen through the Tallowaxes and the stable interests, a very clever man, and perhaps a little sharp. But an attorney ought to be sharp, and it is not to be understood that Mr. Battle descended to sharp practice. But he was a solicitor with whom the old-fashioned Mr. Stokeses would not find themselves in accord. He was a handsome, burly man, nearly sixty years of age, with grey hair and a clean-shorn face, with bright green eyes and a well-formed nose and mouth, a prepossessing man, till something restless about the eyes would at last catch the attention and a little change the judgment. The dean told him the whole story, and during the telling he sat looking very pleasant, with a smile on his face, rubbing his two hands together. All the points were made. The letter of the Marquis, in which he told his brother that he was to be married, was shown to him. The concealment of the birth of the boy till the father had made up his mind to come home was urged. The absurdity of his behaviour since he had been at home was described. The singularity of his conduct in allowing none of his family to become acquainted with his wife was pointed out. This was done by the dean rather than by Lord George, and Lord George, as he heard it all, almost regarded the dean as his enemy. At last he burst out in his own defence. Of course you will understand, Mr. Battle, that our only object is to have the thing proved, so that hereafter there may be no trouble. Just so, my lord. We do not want to oppose my brother, or to injure his child. We want to get at the truth, said the dean. Just so. Where there is concealment there must be suspicion, urged the dean. No doubt. But everything must be done quite openly, said Lord George. I would not have a step taken without the knowledge of Mr. Stokes. If Mr. Stokes would do it himself on my brother's behalf, it would be so much the better. That is hardly probable, said the dean. Not at all probable, said Mr. Battle. I couldn't be a party to an adverse suit, said Lord George. There's no ground for any suit at all, said the lawyer. We cannot bring an action against the Marquis because he chooses to call the lady he lives with a marchioness, or because he calls an infant Lord Popenjoy. Your brother's conduct may be ill-judged. From what you tell me, I think it is. But it is not criminal. 
"'Then nothing need be done,' said Lord George. "'A great deal may be done. Enquiry may be made now which might hereafter be impossible.' Then he begged that he might have a week to consider the matter, and requested that the two gentlemen would call upon him again. End of chapter 26